0: Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to... Confess any sins that you need to to the Lord. Make sure you're filled with the Spirit, ready to focus and concentrate on the study of His Word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity that we have today to come together to fellowship around the teaching of your word and to let our thinking be refreshed and renewed by the absolute truth of your word. Father, we are continuously reminded as we go day by day that we live in a world of uncertainty and a world where anything could happen. We watch events on the news. We are fully aware of the threats of terrorism against this nation as well as threats from within this nation from those who are operating on such extreme concepts of cosmic thinking. Father, we know that you control history, that Jesus Christ is in control of the affairs of this world, and that our nation is protected and our freedom secured by his power and not by anything that we do. Father, we pray that he would continue to watch over us, protect us, give us security, guide and direct our president, And those who advise him, provide for them the information they need to be able to uh, properly execute this war on terrorism, to identify and destroy the enemy, and to continue to protect this nation. Father, we pray for us as we study your word that we might not treat this time lightly, but that we might be impressed with the significance and importance of the study of your word, that it is through your word that we are sanctified, that we are matured spiritually it is on the basis of the truth of your word that our thinking is overhauled our thinking is renewed according to the absolute principles of your revelation father we pray that as we study your word that the thinking of christ would become our thinking and that we would not shrink back from the challenge to grow to spiritual maturity we pray these things in the name of jesus christ our lord and savior amen open your bibles with me to first corinthians 13 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and the first seven verses are considered to be one of the uh, most impressive pieces of poetry and prose written in the Greek language, as Paul describes the characteristics of love. Now, last time we went through the first three verses where I pointed out that the third class condition there is really a condition uh, expressing uh, hyperbole and ex- expressing a an extreme con- possible condition, not a possible condition of reality, but a, Paul is making an argument, and his argument is that if love is not present, in the operation of Christian service on whatever dimension, whether it's the use of spiritual gifts, and he utilizes the, uh, some of the more overt spiritual gifts, and he, and he particularly picks the gifts that he does because these were the gifts that were being abused and overemphasized by the Corinthian congregation. We must not make the mistake, as some do, to sort of take this chapter out of its context Its context is that it is part of an admonition to straighten up the thinking of these carnal Christians in Corinth who have distorted the teaching on spiritual gifts. So Paul is not saying that there is the possibility or the reality of languages pertaining to both human language and angelic language. He is simply using hyperbole to say that under the most uh, extreme imaginable condition, if you had all of these abilities but didn't have love, it would be meaningless, it would be making these sounds would be have no more meaning than a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Second, he states in verse 2 that even if we have the gift of prophecy, and here he's dealing with the realm of revelation and uh, special knowledge and insight derived through revelatory gifts. And this, too, was a problem that the Corinthians had brought with them into Christianity from their pagan background. Remember, we all come to the cross with a certain amount of cultural Baggage. The Bible calls that worldliness. And we have all kinds of ideas, all sorts of notions, all kinds of predispositions and uh, agendas that we bring with us. And it is only through the process of studying God's Word that we are able to exchange our old ideas with new ideas. Incidentally, this is a major problem today in the field of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the study of the principles of interpretation. And one of the things that's happening today is they've come up with this word that sounds good. I just always love the fact that heresy always sounds good. And they talk about pre-understanding. This is, this is a watchword. If you hear somebody talk about pre-understanding, then that word is loaded with baggage. And what they're saying is that you come to the cross. Here's your B.C. period before the cross, before Christ. And you pick up all kinds of values and opinions and predispositions. And then you come to the cross. And at the cross you're saved. And afterwards, you start reading the word of God. You have all these pre-understandings, and those pre-understandings then shape your interpretation of the word so that everyone's interpretation then is sort of culturally slanted. Now, that sounds good, because we know that there is such an abuse that people come with a certain agenda, certain preconceived notions that they do impose on the text. But that's not what this is saying. What this is saying is that whatever background you're coming from, you have these locked-in pre-understandings and that will predispose and predetermine your interpretation of the scripture so that you're always going to come out looking a certain way. And it, and what's subtle here is that this is saying that objective truth and meaning from the text can never really be discovered because you've got a problem with this thing called pre-understanding. And this is why if you come to the text and, and you'll, I, I've heard this argument from, from, uh, professors at places like Dallas Seminary, well, the reason you, you, you're still a traditional dispensationalist is because that's your pre-understanding. But see, the problem with that is that if pre-understanding is so determinative, how does anybody ever come to a knowledge of the truth? Because we every human being comes to the text with a certain mindset that has been shaped by the cosmic system and that is going if if uh, and apart from the holy spirit and apart from a desire to know objective truth under the teaching ministry of the holy spirit everyone at different points in times makes the mistake of interpreting the word of god with reference to the human viewpoint, values, opinions, and predispositions, rather than learning it on its own. But as we grow and mature and come to know the Word and study it in terms of its historical context, background under the correct principles of hermeneutics and exegesis, then what happens is we come to know objective truth, and we change. We change, and we we come to a clear understanding of what the Scripture teaches. We are not coming to our conclusions because of some sort of pre-understanding. Now, I don't like that word pre-understanding, so we're, we will talk about the fact that there are certain uh, predispositions. People come with a certain amount of, to use a nice cultural cliche, come with a certain amount of of uh, intellectual baggage, and this is exactly what is happening with the Corinthians. And rather than walking by the Spirit and coming to an understanding of truth, what what's happening with them is that they're judging the Christian life and church and the spiritual gifts on the basis of what they've seen in their own experience while they've been... And in, involved in these mystery religions. So in those mystery religions, they thought that, that the God entering into them, speaking through them, giving them various so-called revelations were the highest form of spirituality. So Paul addresses that in both of these first two verses. And he says in the second verse, and even if, see, it's, it's this exaggerated hyperbolic condition. He's not saying that you can have all this. Even he as an apostle, did not have all knowledge. Even he, as an apostle, did not have uh, all know all prophecies. So he's not saying this is possible. He's just saying even if, for the sake of argument, that you had the gift of prophecy and you understood all mysteries, that would be omniscience and all knowledge. Again, omniscience and um, and had all faith. That is, could had more faith than anyone else. Uh, so that you could accomplish anything. That's the idiom, could remove mountains to accomplish that which appeared to be impossible. But have not love, I am nothing. He's saying even if you have all spiritual knowledge, even if you're the most spiritually knowledgeable person on the planet, if you don't have love, it doesn't count for anything. And then we saw that in the third verse, he continues this hyperbolic, use of the third class condition and he applies that in terms of asceticism someone who would give up all of that he had or to sell off everything that he that he had uh, in order to feed the poor and even if he would give his body to be burned in other words to uh, so sacrificial in what he did in life that even if he did all of these things and was a gr- perfect ascetic he and did not have love, it would not have any value for the spiritual life. That's the meaning of it profits nothing. And what you see when you take these three verses together is that the central idea is that love is crucial to being able to live the spiritual life. Now you may not be able to mature in that love until you reach some level of spiritual growth but even from the beginning there is a, a there are elements of spiritual growth and the development of what I'm going to call Christian love now let me define what I'm going what I mean by Christian love I'm going to use this term as an umbrella term to relate to what is produced by the Holy Spirit under the terminology of agape, A-G-A-P-E, agape love in the New Testament. When I teach on love, we talk about two different aspects to that love. One is directed toward God, and we call that personal love for God the Father. Personal love for God the Father. The second kind of love that is included in this is an impersonal love for all mankind. And this is has two elements to it. First of all, there's an element that is directed to all believers. And then there's an element that is directed to all unbelievers. But there's a special emphasis that we'll see placed in the New Testament in that impersonal love for all believers. And again, what I mean by impersonal is not that it's some sort of mechanical routine, some sort of machine type of love. But impersonal emphasizes the fact that you don't have to have a personal relationship or personal attraction to the object of love. It can be someone you don't know, and it may be someone you don't care for. But there does not have to be any sort of a personal relationship on which that love is built. So we're going to just use the term Christian love, And it will include both elements. Sometimes I'll break it out in terms of application, but see, the Scripture doesn't specify these a distinction between these two in this passage. It just talks about love. But love, real Christian love, as we'll see, must start with love for God. And we must understand the basis and presupposition for that. Now, before we go any further... I want to say a couple of things in word and and by way of introduction when we talk about love. Love is one of those concepts in America that people are just so confused about. They think of it In terms of emotion, the first thing that comes into your mind when you want to define love is to think in terms of some experience you had when you were 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 years of age and you first fell in love and had all of those wonderful, warm, exciting feelings and you think of that in terms of love. Well, that's not what the Bible means by love. And other elements that occur in our society is we think of love in terms of, of sentiment and in terms of, of treating people a certain way. So that especially now when we are in the beginnings of the political season, preparing for a presidential election next year, you will hear some people talking about the problems that we need to show love to our enemies. We need to, we need to not be involved in uh, war. All of this is somehow wrong and it violates what the Bible teaches about loving uh, all mankind. Well, that's, as you know, that's just a bunch of hogwash. It has nothing to do with what the Bible means by love. But see, what they've done is they've defined love apart from the scripture. They've defined love on the basis of whatever their agenda is, whatever their predisposition is, whatever their background is, whatever their experience before the cross, that is, assuming they're saved, whatever that experience is, that defines love. And this is the basic problem we have with so many of the values in Scripture is having come out of a Western culture influenced by Greek thought, we tend to create abstract ideals. And so I'm going to draw a line here on the overhead that we set up some sort of abstract ideal, whether we're talking about courage, honor, love, whatever the ideal is, we set it up as some sort of abstract value, and then we apply that to everything else in life. And then when we come to God and we read in the Scripture that God is love, we go over here and we pluck out of our mind this abstract definition of love, and we apply that to God and say that God fits this predisposition, this idea of love that we've developed, and that's what God is. And then when somebody comes along and teaches that uh, teaches, for example, that capital punishment is biblical, and that's God's mandate for all nations throughout uh, history since the time of Noah. Well, that how can a loving God do that? See, the only reason you have a contradiction in your mind there is because you're starting off with a false definition of love. You're starting off with a definition of love built on experience or built on human viewpoint thinking, and not a definition that is derived from the acts and actions of God. Think about Jesus and love. We know oh, Jesus, every liberal wants to talk about how Jesus is love. Well, just think about some of the loving things that Jesus did. He called the Pharisees a bunch of vipers. You're just a bunch of stinky, slimy rattlesnakes. You're no better than dead men's bones. Eh, That's real loving. He went into the temple twice at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry, and he physically, bodily picked up the tables. Now, this shows that Jesus was a powerful, strong individual because these were heavy wooden tables where they counted out the money and did all of the exchanging of money from, the, from whatever local currencies people had into the local Jerusalem currency. And, of course, they always took a great cut of the action in terms of the exchange rate. In order that people could buy the the doves and the pigeons and the lambs or goats, whatever they were using for a sacrifice, so Jesus went into the temple and he physically picked these people up and threw them out of the temple, picked up their tables, and hauled them out of the temple. He did this by himself, must have been quite a scene, but this is the meek and mild loving Jesus. This is the loving jesus that that at the wedding of Cana. When the people ran out of of wine to drink and his mother, his mother, what about the scripture, honor your father and your mother? And his mother came to him and said, hey son, you can solve the problem here. And Jesus says, what do you have to do with me? What does this have to do with you? What is it, why is it, what does this have to do with my mission here? And then we have many other episodes in Jesus' life which do not fit the mold of the meek and mild, loving Jesus, because we have this pseudo-concept of love. And then, of course, one of my favorite examples is to remind people that when Jesus went to the cross, he made sure that they had two swords with them. Uh, and that the disciples were armed. If it was today, he would have made sure they all had a forty five or an Uzi under their robes. He wanted to make sure they were armed when they went to Gethsemane in order to make sure that something inappropriate didn't happen, that somebody didn't try to take his life before the time of the cross. He was headed for the cross. He didn't want to be killed by some sort of assassin or some inappropriate means, so he made sure that the disciples were armed and they could protect him. Of course, none of this fits the liberal concept of love. It's because we're not starting with the scripture to define love. We're starting with some sort of external, culturally developed concept of love. Now, there's a couple of interesting contradictions. Well, I won't say contradictions, but transformations that take place in the Bible with reference to love. And I want to start by going to, to the Old Testament to Leviticus nineteen. Leviticus nineteen eighteen and I want us to think through some of the different aspects of love that are that are emphasized. Now, in Leviticus 19.18, the first part of the verse is a negation. It tells you what not to do, prohibition. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. In other words, no mental attitude sins of, of anger, bitterness, jealousy, revenge, motivation, vindictiveness, whatever. But in contrast, and here's the positive mandate, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now he is addressing this, and this is part of the Mosaic Law. So the Mosaic Law is a law code which governs Israel. It's no different from the law code that governs the United States. It's for every citizen of Israel. Now, that does not mean that every citizen of Israel is a believer. So this is, first of all, Leviticus, when we talk about Leviticus 19, 18, this is for both believers and unbelievers. Second thing I want you to note here is that he says that you shall love your neighbor, so neighbor here is the object of love, and that would be love directed toward a believer or unbeliever. So this is a love that can be demonstrated by a believer or an unbeliever, and it is a love that is directed toward either a believer or unbeliever. And third, he gives the standard for the love, and that is as you love yourself. So we're going to put self-love up here as point three. So it's a love that is that can be produced by a believer or an unbeliever. It is a love that is directed to either, either a believer or an unbeliever, and the standard is self-love. You love them like you love yourself. Now this is what I'm going to call human love. Now under point number four, I want to remind you of a separate principle. Unbelievers can only operate on the sin nature. Unbelievers can only operate on the sin nature. So this human love is a love because it's directed towards unbelievers and the mandate's directed towards unbelievers. And unbelievers can manufacture this kind of love and they can manufacture it toward unbelievers that this love must come out of the sin nature. That's the only kind of conclusion we can derive. An unbeliever can't do anything apart from the sin nature, he's not regenerate, he doesn't have, he's not born again, he doesn't have, uh, believers in the New Testament have, he does not have the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament indwelling him. Even the believers don't have the Holy Spirit indwelling them to produce divine love. We're gonna see the importance of that when we get into the New Testament in a minute. So unbelievers can only operate on the sin nature, so this is a love that is produced by the sin nature. Now let's bring in point number five, and that is that the basic orientation of the sin nature is arrogance. The basic orientation of the sin nature is arrogance. So that tells me that the human love that is produced by the unbeliever is arrogant at its core. Huh. Now that ought to change your whole concept of love. Next time you think about the first time some guy or some girl told you they loved you and they weren't a believer, it was arrogance. The next time you hear of somebody saying that we need to u- utilize love for everybody, love all mankind, if they're not a believer, it's arrogance. See, we think of arrogance in a slightly different way. We think of arrogance in terms of conceit, in terms of some sort of overt braggadocio. We think of arrogance in terms of some sort of excessive self-confidence. But arrogance also produces a, in biblical terms, a pseudo-humility. And this is really a pseudo-love. It is an arrogant love. There's an arrogant form of humility. You want to love somebody because you want to demonstrate to people you can do it. You want to be successful in your marriage and love your spouse simply to demonstrate that you can do it because you don't want to go through the pain and the misery of divorce or separation or whatever. Uh, There's all kinds of good things, all kinds of of beneficial things for humanity that people get involved in out of arrogance because somehow in some way their motivation has to do with what it brings them, what they get out of it, how it increases their prestige in their community, how it brings them uh, some level of human relationship, comfort, security, uh, meaning, significance, value, whatever it might be. Ultimately, there's a self-motivation there. And the Lord recognizes this in Leviticus 19.18 when he addresses The the Jews and says you have to love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, your basic orientation of your sin nature is arrogance and to put yourself first. And even as an unbeliever, you can develop a pseudo love that puts other people first. And if you're not even unbelievers living in a framework of a carnal cosmic system, need to learn to put other people first and operate on a level of human viewpoint service in order to make society function, in order for marriage to work, in order for any social uh, interaction to be successful, There, there is a type of love that is necessary. And God isn't demeaning this kind of love. God isn't running it down. God isn't saying, well, you can't have, you can't have divine love, so don't have any love. He doesn't say that. So we have to remember that. Now, when I talk about love, and I tend to, uh, talk about human love in rather disparaging terms, it's because I'm trying to knock that silly, superficial, sentimental concept out of your head as believers. That that's not our standard. We have a different standard. And this different standard is what is jacked up in the New Testament. And it is first stated by Jesus in the upper room following their observance of of uh, Passover when Jesus inaugurated the Lord's table. Before they left the upper room, he said, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And verse 35, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now our first observation here is the love that Jesus is talking about here cannot be the same love that we saw in Leviticus 19.18. Leviticus 19.18 is a love that any unbeliever can perform toward another unbeliever, and it doesn't signify anything. Jesus says in verse 35 that all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one one another. If Jesus is talking about the kind of love that Leviticus 19.18 is talking about, then it would not have a distinguishing characteristic. It would be no different from that kind of love that anybody can demonstrate in terms of just trying to stifle your own overt selfishness and arrogance. Now, remember, as an unbeliever, you're never able to stifle it completely, but you can bring it under some level of control and produce a pseudo-humility and a human love. But Jesus is saying that this love is unique in that it is the mark of a growing believer. That's what a disciple is. A disciple isn't just a believer. Don't make the mistake of falling into the lordship trap where lordship advocates try to equate being a disciple with being a believer. Being a disciple is a second aspect. It has to do with post-Christian experience after salvation and growing and maturing in Christ. So it, a sign that marks you as an an advancing believer, a maturing believer, is that you have love for one another. Now, what does that mean? That's the command that you have love for one another. Well, if you trace out the Greek word here, for one another, all alone, it references other believers. So, in contrast to the Leviticus 19 command in the Old Testament, which was produced by believer or unbeliever, and was directed to believer or unbeliever. The love that Jesus has here is a love that is from believers only and directed to believers only. This is a special kind of love. So how do we do this? Do we just go out and manufacture this because all of a sudden now I have to love other believers, and I look across the church and I see this, this idiot, imbecile, that couldn't make a good decision on a good day if his life depended on it, and say, I have to love that person? Well, that's what the text says. and It's not based on who they are. It's based on who Jesus Christ is and what he did for us on the cross. That always becomes the standard, that you're to love one another as I have loved you. Now, that raises the ante to a large degree, We're to treat that person the same way, in grace, that God treats that person, because even though you think they're a loser, even though you think that they're socially inept, even though you think they're a political imbecile, even though you think that they have done malicious and harmful things toward you, none of that can measure up to the malicious horrible, sinful, inept things that they did to Jesus Christ, just in terms of the sin that they commit in life that Jesus Christ had to pay the penalty for on the cross. So we tend to justify things by saying, well, why should I be nice to them? Why should I treat that person a certain way? Because they've done X, Y, and Z. The Lord says, well, let me see. They did X squared, Y squared, and Z squared to me. And I died on the cross for them, so what 's your problem where 's the point of comparison here that you can 't uh, love them as I have loved them, but we can 't manufacture that on our own. we can 't reach down and and uh, pull our pull this love out of our generated out of our own soul. we can 't manufacture it on our own. It has to be produced separately. so now we skip over to another verse and that is Galatians 5:22. In Galatians 5:22 we discover that this virtue in the Christian life this virtue in the Christian life is produced by God the Holy Spirit. That's why you don't have a love command like Jesus gave in the Old Testament they could not produce it in the old testament the best they could do in the old testament was human viewpoint love based on an operation of the faith rest drill in terms of claiming the principle of leviticus 19:18 they could just try to do it better and more consistently than an than an unbeliever but that's the best they could do they couldn't they might be more consistent at it than an unbeliever but they didn't have the Holy Spirit to make it a different kind of love now, if we take take a look at galatians five in five twenty two in context, Jesus has been talking to them to the Galatians in terms of a problem from the judaizers and the judaizers were a group of jews who came along after paul and said if you really want to experience the christian life it's not just good enough to have faith alone in christ alone it's not good enough just to trust in christ and and uh, rely on that you also have to fulfill the law. If you're a male, you have to be circumcised. You have to observe the Sabbaths. You have to observe all the ritual of Israel. And so as part of Paul's argument in Galatians 5, he's showing that there is that is still slavery to the law, and there's a superior way. And in verse 14 of Galatians 5, he says, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, that is one commandment, You shall love your neighbor As yourself, so he quotes from Leviticus nineteen eighteen, but he is talking simply about fulfilling the law in terms of basic fulfillment from an an unregenerate individual. Then he raises the ante when he comes to verse sixteen, and he says, "Walk by means of the Spirit, and you shall not produce the lust of the flesh." And then as you develop the flow of argument there, and the next few verses, he contrasts the flesh or the sin nature with the Holy Spirit. And then in verses 19, 20, 21, 21, gives the characteristic production of the sin nature. And then in verse 22, the production of the Holy Spirit. And the first characteristic produced by the Holy Spirit, and this is not in any sort of uh Logical order. It's more of a literary order. The first fruit mentioned is love because that's what he's talking about. That's the context. So it, it, he could list them, and in other places he lists some of these things in different in a different order. But he says the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace. And notice the next word, it's long-suffering, makrothymia. Now remember that word because we're going to see it in a minute. That's a characteristic of love. So one of the things that, the, the one of the character qualities, one of the virtues in the Christian life produced by the Holy Spirit is also a characteristic of love. Same with kindness, although it's a different word here than the one used in In 1 Corinthians 13, it's a synonym, and we'll see those two words listed in another passage in just a minute. So now we've got an introduction. We realize that there's something radically different about the love that is being talked about in the New Testament. This is not the kind of love that any unbeliever can produce. This is a love that is uniquely produced in the life of the believer as their character is transformed through the intake of Bible doctrine, walking by the Holy Spirit in terms of application of that doctrine, and through the application of that doctrine, the Holy Spirit brings the believer to maturity, and in that process manifests certain character qualities or transformations that are the result of the Holy Spirit's work and not your work. You can't manufacture this on your own. It is going to be the byproduct of your walk by means of the Holy Spirit. So let's go back to 1 Corinthians 13 and look at the characteristics that are described there for for this kind of love. Verse 4 we read, love suffers long. Okay, I'm using the New King James Version here. Love suffers long. The Greek word there is the word makrothymia. Same word we just had for long-suffering. Sometimes it's translated patience. Looks like this in the Greek, makrothymia. M-A-K-R-O-T-H-U-M-I-A. Macro means long. The Mia has to do with anger, wrath. Long on anger, wrath. It's not somebody who's short-tempered, but somebody who's long-tempered. Somebody who takes a long time before they get angry. Somebody who takes a long time before they get upset and frustrated over something. It's It's long-suffering. Somebody who's willing to put up. With wrong behavior, uh, imbecilic behavior for, uh, a period of time. Somebody who is, remains tranquil and calm, waits while they are enduring provocation without complaint. The idea here is not to seek revenge, retribution, or justification when wrong. It's just the opposite of what you find in Greek thought or even modern thought, which puts the self first. Now, this word is used in another passage in conjunction with love that is foundational for understanding the concept of love. And that's in Ephesians 4, 1 and 2. Ephesians 4, 1 and 2. I therefore the prisoner of the Lord, this is Paul writing and the the first verse in the application section of Ephesians four. Ephesians is one of those books that's laid out in two two sections. The first three sections give the doctrinal foundation for application. What you remember from that is that application ethics okay, just morality, doing what's right apart from an understanding of its doctrinal foundation, is nothing more than legalism and human good. It's nothing more than legalism and human good. Again and again, and by now you should have this drilled into you, I am impressed by the fact that whenever Paul starts talking about application, First thing he does within probably 5 or 6 verses is you find him back in the Old Testament and talking about some abstract principle that's grounded in an understanding of the Trinity and the hypostatic union. And of course that's what happens in in Ephesians 4 by the time you get down to verse uh verse 8 he's in Psalm 68:18 and he's developing a rationale for the spiritual gifts based on the uh ascension of Christ and we studied that last summer. So Paul starts off talking about uh Application. He wants them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling uh, by with which you were called. Recognize the fact that you've been adopted into the family of God. You are royal aristocracy. You're a member of the royal family of God, and royalty acts like royalty. It doesn't act like somebody down in the slums. So he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you were called. And what's the characteristic here? with all humility and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. So you have three, actually four characteristics here. Humility, gentleness, this is the same word that's used, that's used in, in Galatians 5.22 for gentleness. With long-suffering, there's makrothymia again, bearing with one another in love. Now the thing I want to pull out of this passage is the Emphasis on humility. Humility is a foundational virtue for love. In fact, humility is the foundational virtue in the Christian life. Without humility, you can't go anywhere. Humility is the polar opposite to arrogance. If the basic orientation of the sin nature is arrogance... The basic orientation of the believer who's in fellowship is humility, and humility is one of the key ingredients to grace orientation, and it is not humility towards other people, it is humility toward God. Humility toward God will manifest itself in terms of humility towards people, but it starts with humility towards God. Humility towards people without humility towards God is a pseudo-humility. That's what unbelievers produce. But humility is the key orientation. So we have, before we get into talking about love too much, we have to talk about humility. Humility is the idea of submission to authority. Submitting your desires, hopes, dreams, and wishes to God's hopes, dreams, and wishes, to God's plan. Humility is not this sort of meek, mild doormat that we get, pick up. See, there's another word, meek. What does it mean to be meek? See, so immediately you have some sort of, uh, anemic individual who has no guts, no courage, just Let's everybody walk all over him, and that's a culturally uh, crafted conception of meekness. It's not what you get in the Bible. The most meek person in the Bible, is outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, is Moses. Moses had to lead three million Jews through the three million rebellious, cantankerous, grumpy Jews through the wilderness for 40 years he was a strong individual but meekness has to do with with strength under control and that control is the authority of God that's what makes him meek not he is meek toward God which means that he is completely oriented to the authority of God that's the foundation of humility is orientation to the authority of God if you are not oriented to the authority of God you cannot be humble there can be no the two concepts are related to one another that is why this the word translated gentleness there taste is sometimes translated meekness sometimes uh it's translated uh Humility as well, the terms, uh, tapanaifrasune, which is the quality of humility, the first word, is, and proutes are sometimes, uh, are often very close in their meaning. So there has to be this orientation to authority. So the first thing that we have to recognize is if you're going to love anyone, you have to be oriented to the authority of God. If you're not oriented to the authority of God, then when you say, I love you, it is nothing more than human viewpoint, arrogant love. It has no integrity to it. For love to have any value, it must be grounded on integrity. Now, human beings can't produce integrity. You can't do that from your sin nature. Integrity can only be produced by God. Genuine integrity can only be produced by God. And so that's why you have to start with authority orientation to God for love. It's because that that becomes the integrity. God's integrity is the integrity that's the foundation, the strength, the core virtue to your love. It's not your integrity or my integrity. It's God's integrity. So when we start to talk about love, we realize that love is is long-suffering, it's it's patient. Well, th- where does that come from? That only comes from an orientation to the plan of God because we understand what's going on in the plan of God and that God is in control of the details of life. And ultimately, if Macrothemia has the idea of not seeking revenge, retribution, or justification when, when wronged, it's a recognition of the, G, that Jesus Christ controls history and that eventually the su- Supreme Court of Heaven will right all wrongs. So in order to get there, we have to begin with grace orientation, understanding that these other people aren't any better than we are, that even though their failures and flaws may aggravate us to the maximum, our failures and flaws probably aggravate them to the maximum. And they've aggravated God to the maximum because we're as obnoxious as we can be as sinners, but Jesus Christ still loved us. And died on the cross on our behalf. Now that love that died on the cross for our behalf isn't a silly sentimental love. It's a love that's grounded in the righteousness and holiness of God's character and His righteousness and justice, which comprise, uh, which are part of the components in His integrity. So we start off by looking at the fact that, that Love is, first of all, long-suffering, but that presupposes humility, and humility is orientation to the authority of God. That This is what the Proverbs writer emphasizes when he says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It is authority orientation toward God. Once you have authority orientation to God, authority orientation to man will flow from that. But everything starts with God. It's like fellowship. Fellowship in the Bible is primarily fellowship towards God. Fellowship with man, social interaction, is a byproduct of fellowship toward God. Everything begins in terms of your relationship to God, secondarily in relationship to other human beings. So that tells me that what Paul has in mind here... First and foremost, when he's talking about love, it's going to be love that's directed toward God because that becomes the motive for and the foundation for love for all mankind. So we'll go back to a chart I've put up the last couple of weeks, which is shows the structure, the building blocks for love. It starts with grace orientation. Grace orientation is composed of orientation to authority which leads to humility. Humility begins with enforced humility, and then that develops genuine humility. There has to be a structure where God teaches us to respect his authority, and that's called divine discipline. This is one reason why parents, it's so important for parents to have discipline, consistent, objective, not emotional, but objective discipline, including corporal punishment with your children, Because that's what produces authority orientation. One of the worst things you can do as a parent is not discipline your children. Then they'll grow up and they'll have to learn authority orientation from somebody. They'll learn it, they'll learn it in the military or they'll learn it in school or they'll learn it in prison. But they'll learn it somewhere. Somebody's going to teach them that they have to obey some authority. And the only way you can have any success in life is to have authority orientation and God is going to teach that to the believer as foundational to love you can't love without that genuine humility that leads to personal love for God the father that becomes our motivations we understand who he is and what he has done for us in terms of grace it's not earned or deserved then that builds in our soul uh, a genuine motivation for loving other people, impersonal love for all mankind. Loving one another won't function unless it is preceded by that personal love for God. Now, this can happen even in, in baby believers to some degree. And as you grow and mature, each of these elements develop, and our capacity for love grows and increases. So let's get into the text, 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love is patient, it's long-suffering. That long-suffering endures provocation without complaint. Why? Because the focus is not on the experience of rejection, hostility, whatever it may be. The love is focused first and foremost on the plan of God and the person of God and what he has done for us. So love is, first of all, long-suffering, makrothumeo. Second, the text says that love is kind. Love is kind. This is the Greek word krestouomai. Krestouomai. Now, this may sound something like Christos, but it's not. It's krestouomai. C-H-R-E-S-T-E-U-O-M-A-I. Christoumai, And it means to show yourself mild in the sense of being morally good or benevolent. It emphasizes an element of service, reaching out, being useful or helpful to someone else. Now, that makes sense within the overall context of spiritual gifts, that, that we are to be be serving one another in terms of our spiritual gifts, and that should be motivated by love. This is why it's more important for you to grow as a believer by learning and applying doctrine than it is for you to, first of all, find your spiritual gifts and get plugged into some kind of work in the church. Because if you're doing that, then it's usually just meaning. If you're doing work, you're helping out, that's great, but it has no spiritual value. The next characteristic of love is that it does not envy. The first two were positive attributes. The next several are from a negative side, telling you what it is not. By the way, you ought to go home sometime and try to write a definition of love. Try to write a definition of love. No, I didn't say write a description of love. See, that's what most of you would do. You'd go home and you would write something, and it would be a description, but a description is not a definition. And I've had the privilege and the frustration of trying to write a dictionary, and it's very difficult to define love. If you look at the definition in Webster's, it's an awful definition of love. It's emotional. That's the first thing they say, it's an emotion. Well, that's describing it, that's not defining it. You have to define it. So this isn't a definition. These are descriptions, and that's just about the best you can do with love is to give its characteristics to describe it so that we can know what it is when we see it and when we are exhibiting it. So love does not envy. This is the word zelao, which means to be jealous or envious. It has to do with an uncontrolled outburst where you want what something someone else has. So it's this word uh, Zelao. Z-E-L-O-O. Zelao. Zelao. Then the next characteristic is that love does not brag. And there the focus is on what? Self. It's on one's own accomplishments, what one has produced, what one has done. And this word then is related to the next word, love is not puffed up, which is, or love is not arrogant, depending on your translation, which is the Greek word phousio. Phousio. P-H-U-S-I-O-O. Same word that is used in 1 Corinthians 8 1 that gnosis puffs up or makes arrogant. So once again, we are, have a contrast between the self orientation of human love and the absence of arrogance in divine love or the unique Christian love. There is no arrogance present there. Then this leads us to some more overt characteristics in verse 5 love does not behave rudely and this is the greek word aske moneo aske moneo a s c h e m o n e o aske moneo and when this has the negative, it means to be disgraced or shamed. It doesn't do things that disgrace the other person. You don't run down the other person. You don't put that person you love in a position of, of, uh, where it's going to expose their weaknesses. You're not going to talk about the things that they've done that are wrong. You're not going to get with your uh, friends and talk and talk about the, the mistakes that your husband or your wife has made. Love does not behave rudely. That's what that means. It doesn't disgrace or shame its object, and this is described as a rude manner. It would also include not being abusive not being abusive either verbally, emotionally, or physically. This excludes that. So love, that is, when when you see someone who is verbally, emotionally, or physically abusive, then that is the absence of love. That is nothing more than being self-centered, and there's no basis at all for that kind of involvement. In fact, when you get into a relationship Where there is that kind of abuse, and if a woman is in a relationship, or a man for that matter is is in a relationship where there's physical abuse, they need to get out. Because what happens is it start, starts to destroy your soul as you justify staying in that abusive relationship because you're trying to justify the wrong behavior of a spouse. And any Christian who ever gets involved as the initiator in abusive an abusive relationship, especially physical abuse, is completely out of line in the Christian life. There is no basis for that. That has nothing to do with... Uh, I've heard husbands try to justify it in terms of uh, women are to be submissive, and so they're going to make their wives submissive and all kinds of horrible rationales, and that has that is just the opposite of love. The next characteristic is love does not seek its own. This is the basic Greek word zeteo, Z-E-T-E-O, zeteo, which means to put itself first. Love is not putting itself first. It doesn't seek its own. It's not self-absorbed. So zeteo here has to do with self-absorption. So that immediately draws a distinction with human viewpoint love. It is, does not seek itself. It does not put its own desires first. Then the next phrase that we have, it is not provoked. It is not provoked. This is the Greek word paroxuno. Paroxuno. P-A-R-O-Z-U-N-O. P-A-R-O-Z-U-N-O. And it just simply means it's not easily angered, easily upset, easily provoked. It's not, does not easily become irritated with the object of love. So if you're a constant source of irritation or if your spouse is constantly irritating you, then you need to deal with that. Uh, spiritually, in your own soul, because that is the opposite of biblical love, and that indicates that the basic orientation of your soul is arrogant self-absorption. Then the next characteristic that we have is that it thinks no evil. Thinks no evil from the Greek word logizomai, meaning to to think. And this word logizomai is the same word we have for... Uh, imputation, And this is the idea that love does not impute wrong to others. So don't blame other people for doing wrong. Don't blame the object of love for something. Love always gives the benefit of the doubt to the object of love. And then in verse 6, love does not rejoice with iniquity. And there the word for iniquity is adikia, which is unrighteousness. All unrighteousness is sin, according to 1 John 5. So love does not rejoice with evil, but overlooks evil. In other words, this doesn't, this idea here, not rejoicing in iniquity, means that love seeks to overlook the mistakes and the sin that is involved in the object of love. It is has an optimistic orientation, not a pessimistic orientation. So this emphasizes the integrity of the love. It is not making an issue out of the sin in the other person's life. But in contrast, see, this is the thing. You can't just take the first phrase in isolation. You can't say, well, love doesn't rejoice in iniquity. Look at the contrast. Love doesn't rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It rejoices in integrity. And this is the Greek word, sun-kairo, which indicates rejoicing together. Sun-kairo. This last phrase, word, kairo, has to do with joy. S-U-N-K-A-I-R-O. Even though this is the, the letter gamma, when you have a gamma preceding a kappa, it's pronounced like an N. Sun-kairo. And it means to rejoice Uh, Together in the truth. There is a positive orientation because love is consistent with integrity. Then verse 7. Love. Bears all things. Let me see here. Love rejoices in the truth. Then love bears all things. Hopes all things and endures all things. Love bears all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Now this is an interesting, interesting organization here. The first word bears all things is the Greek word verb stego. Stego. S-T-E-G-O. And this doesn't mean to bear something like you carry a burden. It's not that idea at all. It has the idea of concealing something. That love hides the faults of others or covers them up. This is the idea of protecting the privacy of someone you love. You don't go around talking about their mistakes. You don't go into prayer meeting and say, well, we need to pray for my husband or my wife because they did this or because of that or, or whatever it is. You, you don't uh, spread your dirty laundry at home all around the neighborhood. It covers things up. That doesn't mean that uh, if there's criminality that you don't deal with it. It's just talking about the fact that you don't get out and talk about your spouse's faults in front of other people. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. and Actually, it's not limited to your spouse it's any believer. You don't go around focusing on their faults. It believes all things. It has a positive orientation. You want to believe what's best in other people. It has a confident expectation. It hopes all things. And it endures all things, hupomenes, it bears up under difficulties. When there's failings in the people that one loves, then you remember your orientation is to the stability of God and you don't focus on other people's failures. This gives us the parameters for understanding love. Here's a circle that describes the parameters, the boundaries of love. We're told that it's steadfast, it it hangs in there, it it endures, it's it's patient, it's not going to justify revenge on other people. There's an element of kindness. It's not just the absence of mental attitude sins, it's seeking out to help and to serve other people. Then negatively, it's not envious, it's not going to be easily provoked by other people, it's not conceited, it's not self-absorbed, it's not arrogant, it's not seeking its own. It's not rude, it, it does not, it's not abusive, it's not self-absorbed, it's not easily angered, it doesn't impute evil, it doesn't seek to blame others for their faults, their problems, and their failings. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, it's not looking for an excuse to get back at a person because they do something that's wrong, but their focus is on integrity. This is how you define love In the New Testament, you don't go out and take some abstract idea of love and come and impose it on the text. This is the starting point. Now, this isn't all that the New Testament says about love. Sit down sometime and think about what Jesus Christ does in the cross, what's involved there. That's the standard, to love one another as I have loved you. That, too, brings us, and we've done that in the past, where that illustrates what love is. Next time, we'll come back and we will uh, press on to what has uh, what how Paul's application of this to the specific problem of the abuse of tongues in the Corinthian congregation, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to be challenged by the truth of your word, and to come to a greater understanding of what love is. The greatest demonstration of that was at the cross, where Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sin. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're unsure of your eternal life, uncertain of your eternal destiny. Well, this is your opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ, because of the great love with which God loved us, became a human being. The second person of the Trinity took on humanity, walked in the cesspool of human experience in the living among sinful creatures, went to the cross where he paid the penalty for your sins. No greater love could be demonstrated. So all your sins are paid for. It's not the issue. The issue isn't your moral reformation, making some bargain with God, going through some sort of empty ritual. The issue is simply trust in Christ, relying exclusively upon what he did on the cross for your salvation. Right now, this is your opportunity to make your eternal destiny sure and certain. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've studied today and that we might not easily or quickly forget what we've studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.